Foods have festivals to celebrate them. Gilroy has its garlic festival. That's one of the greats. Central Valley Pizza Festival is held here in Lemoore annually. There are some weird ones. I'll just give you a couple that I ran into. Bug Fest. This entomorphagia... I can't pronounce it. Ento, I know, has to do with insects because when I went to UC Riverside, they had a huge entomology department. They studied insects. They had like cockroaches that were six inches long. And they were in a container that was open, but they said they couldn't crawl out. That's a true story. So anyway, the Bug Fest. North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences hosts 35,000 visitors each year where they partake in Cafe Insectica, a pop-up restaurant where local chefs prepare insect delicacies like quivering waxworm quiche. And they sell out. This year's theme, stink bugs. Waikiki Spam Jam. This is a real thing, right? Hawaii is known for spam. Although it's a small state, its people consume more spam than any other state in the United States. To celebrate the Hawaiian bond to spam, they host a festival each year where local chefs prepare dishes like spam musabi and spam wonton. That's a real thing. One of the Lord's annual festivals involves a non-food yeast. The first mention of yeast in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12. If you want to open your Bible there, you can. It's in conjunction with the second of Israel's annual feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Exodus 12, 5, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but on that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread till the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Now in the Bible, yeast goes by the name leaven. Leaven is mentioned 22 times in the Old Testament, 17 times in the New Testament. Yeast is a microorganism, part of the fungi family. I was going to say, you know, the famous fungus among us joke, but you don't seem very happy tonight, so I'm going <laughs> to save that till next time. Uh, fun, uh, yeast digests sugar and excretes carbon dioxide and alcohol as a byproduct. Yeast cells multiply rapidly as long as there's enough sugar and the conditions of temperature and moisture are correct. When yeast is put in warm dough, it begins to digest the sugars and multiply, excreting carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide bubbles are trapped in the dough. The bread then gets puffed up with air pockets created by the yeast after it is baked, allowing the bread to be fluffy and substantial rather than to remain flat. Although we love the benefits of yeast, it is an agent of decay. And because it has a decaying effect on living things, the Bible uses it as a metaphor for sin. And so leaven in the Bible is a metaphor for sin, yeast. Here's a New Testament use of the word in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
to show you how it's used. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so the Apostle Paul there writing used leaven to describe the spread and the growth of sin in the Corinthian assembly. We'll return to those verses, by the way, in a few minutes as we make an application of some of these things. So you might want to keep a, a watch on that. The Apostle Paul uh, has uh, I already said that. If you were here for our last study, we looked at the Feast of Passover. It commemorated the night that the destroyer of the firstborn passed over those households that had applied the blood of the sacrificed lamb to their doorposts. Passover was the 14th of the Jewish month, Nisan. We just read that the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on the day after the Passover, and it continued for seven days. The lamb was slain on the 14th day at sunset, which ended the day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread began immediately after sunset, which would uh, obviously be the 15th day. Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted seven days from Nisan 15 until Nisan 21. And then we'll see next time that the third of the spring feasts, which is the Feast of First Fruits, also occurred during these dates. And so you have Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits all happening uh, within a week's period of time, starting on the 14th of Nisan. As a reminder, this Hebrew word for feasts is moadim, and it means appointed times. They weren't necessarily feasts the way we understand. They were, uh, they were appointments with God where certain things took place. Uh, Day of Atonement, for example, uh, no feasting took place. It was a fast day. And so don't think in terms of Thanksgiving where you're going to scarf yourself full of food. Uh, they are appointments that God put on a calendar, seven of them, uh, which tell a story. He carefully planned and orchestrated the timing and sequence of each of the feasts to demonstrate the work of redemption through Jesus Christ. I was struck the other night, um, or actually last night, we had a memorial service here for Ray Reese, and um, it, it's interesting, uh, God has gone to such great lengths to illustrate spiritual truth for us, because he wants to make sure that we understand it. And uh, when I, lately when I do a memorial or a funeral, I use the illustration of garments. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, we have filthy garments as human beings. If, if God sees us in our natural state, we're dressed in filthy rags. Uh, the best that we can do still leaves us far short. Uh, but God in Jesus Christ has taken that upon himself and then he offers us a robe of righteousness which is necessary to get into heaven. And so people can grab that idea and then they can say, oh, that's, that's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ or to accept Jesus Christ or to receive Jesus Christ. It's an illustration. And so these feasts, as we go through them, uh, they are illustrating God's work of redemption. And we saw last time that Jesus was the Passover lamb. He fulfilled all that symbolism and now he's going to fulfill the Passover or the feast after Passover on leavened bread. Uh, leaven, as I said, symbolizes sin and decay, or the power of death, you might say. Jesus, God's lamb, was killed and placed in the tomb on twilight of Passover. Two things to note about Jesus. First, 
he had led a pure, spotless life that was unblemished by sin. We could say that his life was unleavened. Search though you may, you find nothing sinful in him. And uh, so he, he uh, alone among men, the God-man, lived a life that was free of spot and blemish. Uh, he was unleavened. Second, although in the tomb for part of three days and three nights, his body would not see decay. We would say that his body was unleavened. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter quoted David in Psalm 1610, applying it to Jesus. He said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, meaning decay. And so it was a shout out to uh, unleavened bread. And so the fulfillment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is Jesus buried after his crucifixion. The day before Passover was known as Preparation Day, the day one prepared for the feasts of Passover and Unleavened Bread. Of course, the lamb had to be prepared, but the houses were also cleaned as families searched for leaven. This included washing walls, boiling the cooking items, and washing clothes. And so this was a... You, you see, we read in Exodus 12, you could be cut off from Israel and thrown out of Israel uh, if leaven was found. And so they went through and, and meticulously cleaned uh, to, to prepare for these feasts. In six specific places, the prohibition on yeast is emphasized during this feast. Uh, three times in Exodus, once in Leviticus, and another time in Deuteronomy. There was no tolerance for disobedience in regards to this and keeping the house area free from leaven. Deuteronomy 16 says, No leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight remain overnight till morning. Exodus 13, unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no unleavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. Now, besides being prophetic of the sinless Son of God being placed in the tomb without being subject to decay, there are a few other lessons for us from the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The picture of searching your house for yeast it's a great analogy or illustration for us of searching our lives for any hidden sin. Israel was to take the yeast and rid it from their midst the same way we should rid our lives of sin. And so uh, it's, leaven was something tangible that they could find and get rid of. They would burn it uh, if necessary. Uh, we need to find sin in our lives through uh, asking God to search our hearts and then deal with what we find there. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to remind Israel of the speed of their Egyptian deliverance. When the Lord passed over the land of Egypt and the firstborn died except for the house of Israel. Pharaoh was outraged and demanded Israel leave Egypt at once. They didn't have time to wait for bread to rise before they baked it. And so unleavened bread symbolized to them the hastiness of their exodus out of Egypt. In his second letter, the Apostle Peter exhorts believers to live the kind of lives that will hasten the return of Jesus. He meant lives that are set apart in service to the Lord, lives that are overcoming sin and the flesh. And so we need to be a hasty people when it comes to serving. Every time I use that word, I think of the Lord of the Rings. I, I'm sorry, I can't help it, but Treebeard, the, the Ent, they're very slow. Uh, they're not hasty. It takes them all day to just say hello. And so, uh, but we, we don't have time for that. We're to be a hasty people when it comes to 
dealing with sin in our lives get rid of it. There's plenty of power at the cross to deal with sin and get about the business of serving him. Because in some sense, the, Paul said, or Peter said, we can speed up the coming of the Lord. We can hasten it. And that, that's a challenge to people. People always come up to me afterward and say, how is that even possible? That, that can't mean that. But I think it does. He says, you, you live a life that will hasten the coming of the Lord. And the way I kind of have understood it over the years is that if you believe in an imminent rapture, uh, that the rapture could happen at any moment, it's going to happen in conjunction with somebody, get, the last person getting saved in the church age. There's a statement that Paul uses in the book of Romans. He says, uh, he calls it the fullness of the Gentiles. And so there's a, I don't know if it's a number or a, how God, uh, you know, accounts for it, but there is a fullness of the church, of the Gentiles, and once that is achieved, then the Lord will resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers. And so obviously, if we can get the gospel out to more people, we would be hastening that day. Uh, it, it could happen any day, but obviously we want to get the gospel out uh, and so that's the kind of people that we want to be, a hasty people with the gospel. Now, the primary application of unleavened bread to us as believers in the church age, I think, comes from the verses I quoted earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's read them again. Paul says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, pour, uh, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, none of that makes any sense unless you understand what we've been talking about, Passover and unleavened bread. And even though the Corinthian church was a Gentile church, uh, Paul could use these analogies because they were well aware of the Jewish calendar and the feasts. But let me give you the context of that exhortation. Why is he telling them that? Well, he was dealing with sin, uh, severe sin, in the church at Corinth. Specifically, if you read the verses preceding that, there was a man professing to be a believer who was having sex with his father's wife. The Corinthians were tolerating it, even celebrating it, as an example of how gracious they were and how magnanimous they were. Paul's counsel was to put the man out of the church immediately, removing him from the spiritual protection of the church in hope that he would repent. Paul saw the situation as a potential danger to the whole church. What's always interesting, you have to stop for a minute and remember, this was a letter that would be read aloud to the church. This wasn't a personal correspondence from, this was an email from Paul to the pastor giving him some advice on how to handle a situation. The church would be gathered. They'd come and say, hey, we've received a letter from Paul, chapter 1, cha of course they didn't have chapters, but chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Now, concerning this situation, which this guy sitting right there is in, I want you to kick him out of the church right now and turn him over to the devil so that his soul may be saved. I mean, that, can you, what do you think happened? Do you think they paused and said, let's take a break while we kick out our brother uh, and, and obey what the Apostle Paul has to say? And this is heavy stuff when you think about it. I mean, it's heavy anyway, just the thought of it, but that it actually happened live uh, is very interesting. 
And a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, Paul didn't go through the process of church discipline. You like air quotes? Sometimes I do air quotes. I haven't done air quotes in a long time. Church, air parentheses, that's something Gene invented. But uh, uh, Paul said, hey, people say, hey, what about the process of church discipline? And you don't need to discipline somebody who's in blatant, obvious sin. You know, it, it isn't a matter of going to somebody who's offended you. It's a matter of dealing with something that's so obviously sinful, it can be dealt with immediately. And so that's the background for what was happening with these verses. Paul said it's not just sin, but it's dangerous for the whole church. To show how dangerous tolerance was, Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so he was thinking of this situation with this man and woman as leaven in the lump of the church, and just like yeast makes things rise and is a corrupting agent, if left alone and unchecked, it will spread. Not that specific sin, but other sins and the tolerance of other sins. It would work its way through their ranks like leaven in, a, in dough. And so it's very, very serious for the church. We see something similar as we track what I look at as the tolerance of the church over the years. Um, all of us get involved to some extent in this. We call it being desensitized. We see or hear or are exposed to things that are out in the world. And we become a little bit desensitized to their sinfulness, ultimately accepting some of them. And so, you know, we take our stand against sin and things that are sinful. The world is way over here, you know, pushing its agenda. Uh, and we have a tendency to slide in that direction. We're, so we're still a lot better than the world. We're a lot holier than the world. But things that were once really bedrock for us in terms of what morality is can sort of soften and change too. And I, I'm not, you know, picking on anybody. It's something that we all have to worry about. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, and I don't, uh, I'll, I'll just give you a disclaimer right now. Um, I don't know, I'm going to mention a television show in a minute. And I don't know that any of you watch this show. And so I'm not picking on anybody. It's just a great example. So here's an example. When I was growing up, it was a big deal for the Dick Van Dyke show. How many remember? <laughs> Get that guy out of here. There's a big deal for the Dick Van Dyke show to show Rob and Laura Petrie, a happily married couple, in their bedroom, wearing full PJs and sleeping in separate beds, merely talking to each other. And that was super risque for its time. Today I read on social media that Christians can't wait for Game of Thrones to start each new season. The Parents Guide on IMDb says of Game of Thrones, sex is the driving force of this series. Full nudity occurs quite frequently throughout each season, including extended instances of exposed breasts, buttocks, and genitals, both male and female. Viewers can expect to see and hear graphic sex scenes, many of which take place in a brothel, as well as several scenes and situations of incest, rape, and sexual violence against women. So that's your Game of Thrones plot outline. So are we desensitized? Certainly in, some people are, and I would say that we've become leavened in that situation where there's no reason for Christians to be partaking of that kind of information. And so Paul would say, purge out the old leaven. 
as was the custom of Jews before the Passover to cleanse their homes from all leaven, so the church is to clean out immoral practices from its midst, starting just us individually, taking a look at our lives and thinking, hey, have we, where have I moved, you know, uh, and, and uh, that's Game of Thrones is starting in 10 minutes, so. I remember after I had been a Christian for a while, um, I, uh, you know, when we first got saved, we got rid of everything. I don't know if you guys went through that. You know, all the albums, all the books, all the everything. And then after a while, you start bringing those things back in. Uh, and, and sometimes you just have to take a fresh inventory and say, if I threw them away once, maybe I should throw them away again. And so we're not being legalistic. I don't want to, you know, that's why I'm not talking about anybody. All of us have to make our own decision. Have it to yourself and to the Lord. But some things are pretty clear. I mean, you really shouldn't be watching other people have sex. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on really solid ground there, I think, by saying that, you know, that's not the kind of thing that you want to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously there's gray areas. I can't tell you what music to listen to or not to. We're never going to do that. I'm just suggesting that the world exerts so much pressure on us. It's so hard to, to be in the world and not be of the world that we have a tendency to think, well, I, I'm not as bad as the world. I can do this. I have the liberty to do it. Um, some things, maybe yes, maybe no. Other things, Paul would say to the Corinthians, he'd say, okay, you can do it, but is it helpful? Uh, does it advance your walk with the Lord? Is it helping you share the gospel? You know, just, so every now and then, you know, it's a good idea to look for leaven in your life and to try and deal with some of the things that have crept in that are really leading uh, to a bad end. That you may be a new lump, he says, uh, you are truly unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. By virtue of being in Jesus Christ, we're seen by God as unleavened. Our practice may be to indulge leaven from time to time, but our position is that of being unleavened. And so God says part of being saved by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is that you're unleavened. You know, your sin is forgiven. Um, and, uh, but in our actual practice, we sin from time to time. And so Paul says, purge out that leaven. And so we need to bring our practice under the authority of our position and live as that new lump. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to give us power over sin, to purge it from our lives, keeping us unleavened. He says, let us therefore keep the feasts. The feasts surrounding leaven, of course, Passover and unleavened bread, and as we'll see, first fruits. Was Paul suggesting we celebrate these feasts? No. There are a handful of exhortations in the New Testament that tell us we are under no obligation to observe the feasts. I've given you some in, in previous weeks, but there's plenty. In the book of Acts, there's a church council, Acts chapter 15, the church council to determine whether or not Gentiles need to come under any portion or what portion of the law of Moses, which would include the feasts. And at the end of their talking, uh, the Jewish believers who were in charge of the church at the time said, yeah, Gentiles have no bearing when it comes to the law of Moses or keeping it. Uh, they don't need to keep the Sabbath. They don't need to keep days or feasts. Uh, they just need to not offend Jews by eating uh, things that were strangled and drinking blood and things that were uh, you know, prohibited, uh, were offensive to the Jews. 
Uh, and so a lot of pe- you know, times people will go to these scriptures and say, well, it says that, but we really should keep the feast. And there's no but. If you want to celebrate Passover and unleavened bread, that's great. But they don't do anything for you. Uh, and we're under no obligation to do that. Something else to consider, once Israel was in the land, you remember we read this last week, the feasts were to, uh, to be observed in Jerusalem at the temple. Originally, Passover was observed in homes, private homes, uh, and then when it moved into uh, Deuteronomy, God says, hey, when you get to the land, I want you to observe the feasts where my presence is, where my name is. And he meant in the temple, tabernacle first, then the temple at Jerusalem. And so you can't really keep the feast of Passover, the biblical feast of Passover, on an annual basis or unleavened bread. You can do some, something at home that's kind of, you know, a commemoration, but you're not really keeping the feast anyway because it can only be kept in Jerusalem when there is a temple, and there hasn't been a temple since 70 A.D. And so it's, to me, it's a moot point anyway in terms of keeping these feasts. We keep the feasts not by celebrating them on the calendar annually, but by applying them to our walk daily. We understand the symbolism and the typology and the representation, and we bring it into our life. So rather than keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days, uh, once a year in September or October, we're to look for leaven in our lives constantly and get rid of it and live up to our position in Jesus Christ. We keep the feast spiritually by walking in their fulfillment. Amen? Amen. 